The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning and welcome to Mentoring with Larry Sternberg on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. I'm here today with my guest, Gail Kendall, who is an internationally known ceramic artist and teacher. Gail was raised in a small lumber town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Following her formal education, she spent 10 years working as an independent studio artist in St. Paul. In 1987, she accepted a position with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, where she taught for 24 years. Gail has been a resident artist at quite a number of different studios and organizations, and she has received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Council on Education in the Ceramic Arts. Gail, it's truly a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be here. I am really interested to know about some of your mentors. Who comes to mind? Well, I would have to say my most profound mentors and the ones I always acknowledge are my two teachers in the ceramic arena um, from the University of Michigan, John Stevenson, who died this past year, and his wife, Suzanne Stevenson, who was my mentor in graduate school at Eastern Michigan University. And the reason... I would kind of narrow it into something that for many people, they probably have many mentors before this. Um, but I was a late starter, and I was kind of a flaky undergrad, and I didn't really think in any kind of long-range terms, and I didn't have a lot of confidence. So the mentors I'm acknowledging are people that I came to, well, I, I, John, even though I was a flaky student, I appreciated John Stevenson was a great teacher, a quiet man of few words, and I have passed down the things he said about working with clay and how to think about what you're doing and both conceptual and technical things. I make a point to pass on to my students. Because he was a quiet man, he didn't say that much. And then his wife, Susie, was the opposite. Susie Stevenson is still alive and well and lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, she was just a support system in a, a way that I have always tried to acknowledge. And then the two of them had an attribute that I admire in the visual arts arena, which is that both of them, through these very long careers, experimented very widely with what they did in their studio practice. So they did latch on to something that was successful, but they were experimental, and I've always admired that about them. It's not all that common, frankly. Did that make you more experimental than you might otherwise have been? One can only hope, but I really can't tell. When it comes to me and my studio life, I have to leave it up to others, a judge, to judge that kind of thing. I go to work and I work hard. <laughs> well, something you repeated a couple of times, you said you were a flaky student. Tell me more mm. about that. Well, for whatever reasons, and I think that here I am, a woman of a certain age, and I think that women missed out on a lot of the kind of mentoring that would be common for males back in the 50s, late 40s and 50s when I started education. The typical example would be that nobody thought of really nurturing women in sciences or mathematics. You just sort of fell through the cracks. And then, you know, for all of these different reasons, I would also probably need to be on the couch to really you know, the therapist couch, to really get a hold of them. But I had two older siblings, a decade older than me, more or less, and they were outstanding students. And I was always, um, what, not that outstanding of a student. And I think I lost confidence. 
And, um, and then I've always, to this day, I'm described as slapdash. And, I, of course, that would get in the way of being some kind of academic-focused person. So I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it does. Thank you very much. You said he taught you quite a number of things that you pass on to your students. Can you name a couple? He said that when you sit at a potter's wheel and think about throwing a form, hold in your mind the idea of an eggshell. And he wasn't talking about lightness or thinness. He was talking about balance and the distribution of material. So that's one thing. And, and actually, he was the opposite. He was this quiet man who hardly said anything. Also, I was going to a very high-powered school with um, pretty stellar students in the graduate program. And undergraduate teaching sort of probably got a little bit of the short shrift. Or he paid attention to his best students, of which I was never one. Another thing he said to the class one day that is critical to me, because like anything in my realm, in every realm, what separates the rookies from the pros is the details. And he focused on the details. And he said, you must think about the inside of the form you're making as well as the outside. You must think about the underside as well as what we see when we immediately see something. So those two things are the things that always come up for me when I'm teaching a workshop. I pass both of those on to students. You've said that you didn't have any mentors early in life, and I accept that. I'm wondering, when did you know you wanted to be an artist? Well, I suppose in a certain way, I would have to call my terrible and wonderful mother a mentor, because she believed that education was the panacea that would solve all world problems, and she turned me on to three things from the earliest age. She was a complete propagandist for art and for music, for four things maybe, for ideas and for politics. And it was kind of a nonstop, everlasting, ongoing monologue <laughs> from this mother, this woman. And so, I mean, she was wonderful in that she took me out into nature all the time and then um, brought art books that was strictly a working-class town, a working-class upbringing. My parents kind of worked themselves up for nothing, and even though she was very stern and, and forbidding in many ways, I knew I had a very special uh, woman at the helm there. So I guess I would have to call her a mentor. And I guess outside of the arena, back when I was still an unfocused person, I would have to call my piano teacher um, a mentor. However, piano is a good analogy because I started out as a music major at the university and you could not be slapdash and succeed as a music major. You could not be undisciplined. You had to be focused. You had to be able to practice six hours a day or you would fail. And I laughingly sort of, but in another way, I know this world. Um, you can be flaky and get through art school. Because artists often, re, you know, they need to have these qualities that aren't standard issue. And a, a lot of times people that are not standard issue are drawn to the visual art realm. Any of these qualities that you think are fundamental and would apply to any realm of art? Well, I think the thing that separates the visual artist and also the poet and also the composer, the thing that's, that is universal amongst all of these works is that instead of being handled a textbook and you are to learn the textbook and regurgitate it on an exam, you have to face yourself and pull everything out from the inside, thus making each of us exceedingly vulnerable. When you have a critique, it's not, you're not just being critiqued on how well you regurgitated the test or the information in the book. It can be hurtful. It can be, you know, daunting. It can be terrifying. But um, that is the one thing that is very different about these worlds than, and, a, and a universal attribute of these worlds compared to anybody going through, say, pre-med or any others and most other other work, you know, areas of professionalism. 
So this husband and wife team, who were your first mentors that you chose to talk about today, what did they see in you? I think they saw somebody who was probably never going to make it in the art field. You know, I hate to be so blunt, but I think they did. And I think what happened is I came out of of undergraduate school, especially then, um, and I did not think I had it in me to be an artist. And then life delivered some ups and downs, and the outshot of those uh, that tra- those traumas that one, a particular one I'm not going to talk about, but the upshot of it was that I became highly motivated and highly focused. Actually, you know, I never thought about this before, but I have a young daughter, and her path was exactly like mine, is that she was, if she liked something, she applied herself and did well. If she was not swept away by the teacher or the subject matter, she did exceedingly poorly, and she ended up at a high-powered ballet school, and after one year, two years, she lived away from home, she had to do the same, she had to give it up. She had to face this trauma of giving up her dream, and it's done the same thing for her. Actually, this might be something that happens to people. The bad things that happen to us either fix us or do us in. And in both my case and her case, it sort of fixed us. Well, I've always maintained that at the time an event happens, it might be very painful, and you might wish that it hadn't happened, but you can't really tell whether it's good or bad until you see where it takes you on your journey and you look back on it. And sometimes those painful events might be labeled among the best things that ever happened to us. At the time it happens, you can't, there's no way to see it because you have to get beyond it and look back. I completely agree with you, Larry, because, well, one thing is I think everything, I see the duality in everything. And I just think everything has its pluses and minuses. Um, for example, a good example would be, should I be single or should I be married? Should I be in a relationship? Well, they're like puzzle pieces. The, the cons of one can be the pros of the other. And I just think everything in life, in the hardships, yes. Um, I can speak about my daughter's ballet. You know, her parents kind of dropped down on the ground and, and kissed Mother Earth in gratitude that she wasn't going to go try to be a dancer. Um, but, but she learned so much from it that even she would say that it was the thing that changed her life, that allowed her to pursue everything through pain, through difficulty, through struggle. She's there because of that experience. And what's she doing now? Right now she's living in Burkina Faso, and she's in her first year uh, in the Peace Corps. And that's hellish, I'll tell you that, for <laughs> starters. For my edification and the edification of our listeners, where is Burkina Faso? Okay, Burkina Faso used to be called, for the older amongst us, was called Upper Volta. And in 1983, it gained its, I think maybe 80, early 80s, it gained its independence and changed its name to Burkina Faso. It is um, not coastal West, West Africa. It's surrounded by four other countries, um, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, and Nigeria, I believe. I might be wrong about some of that, but it's an inland. It's one of the world's most poor countries. Um, it's full of malaria, mosquitoes, um, and she is going through a great period of adjustment. We're very proud of her. Well, there's going to be some real growth there. Mm-hmm. In thinking about your mentors... Who comes to mind next? Well, I would say that um, I went off and I did a little teaching. I thought I could just be an academic. I had taught school um, out of undergrad, and I knew I loved teaching, but I didn't like having to be the disciplinarian or maintain all of that, um, the amount of structure that I needed to be happening. So I went right from grad school into teaching and um, then at, in a junior college and then left that. And because of love, and went away to North Dakota, my years in the gulag, I call them. No offense if there's any <laughs> North Dakotans listening. Um, and um, that marriage didn't last. Um, it's not the marriage I'm in now. But um, eventually, and it was when I got divorced, I realized I needed to go back into academia. I'd been an independent artist for many years living in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I was just worried that if I didn't have some 
uh, economic security instead of in independent studio artists do not have that. They live, they have lean years and good years and lean days and good days and months and weeks. And it's really, uh, you have to have a lot of uh, gambler in you. I was already in my 40s and I was looking to the future not wanting to be a bag lady. I said I had to get a job so I wouldn't be a bag lady. Um, I took a job at Nebraska in a year where I had several offers, and I thought if I came, took the job in Nebraska, I would maintain my close affiliation to the wonderful art world that was in Minneapolis-St. Paul at the time. And I was so lucky to have a wonderful boss. And although I went... He was my department chair for 18 years. I've never before put the word mentor on him. I just knew that I had a phenomenal support system and that it turned out I had some ambition in that, in that job. And he was there. He was What's there helping me. His name is Joe Rufo. He lives here in Lincoln, Nebraska. He retired from the university some years ago. He's a painter and fabricator, an artist, shows work in, at a gallery in Omaha. And he, he was just the perfect boss for me, just that when simple. We, and I've never been particularly great with bosses. We're going to take a brief break, ladies and gentlemen. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about this great boss. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Welcome back. This is Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. I'm discussing with my guest, Gail, the mentors she's had in her life. And when we broke for a commercial, she was just starting to tell me about Joe Rufo. So, Gail, tell us about Joe. Okay. Um, I came down for an interview in March of 1987, a very rainy, cold, I guess the way I'd like to preface this, even though it's more anecdotal off the topic, is that when I applied for the job in Nebraska, I never gave it another thought. I submitted my application And in my mind, I had written off Nebraska as not being any place I would ever want to go. And I imagined it being like, I imagined Lincoln, Nebraska being like Gillette, Wyoming was the time I'd been through it, and it was nothing but trailers and oil boom. And then a woman came to a gallery I was babysitting in uh, one day, a cooperative gallery in Minneapolis, And we got to chatting, and she was from Lincoln, Nebraska, and she just told me how wonderful it was. She was also an arts person. And um, so I came with a a really open mind, excited to be coming to the interview. I did not meet Joe until the end of the day when he took me to the airport. He was tied up. And right from the beginning, I just had this instinctive feeling that I could work well with this man. And I think that if I had to say what did he mentor, never consciously to me, 
but was a kind of professionalism that um, really radiated with me in a very positive manner. And he w- one thing, he was utterly direct, and I'm a direct person. So I remember saying that I thought the ceramics should be at a different building than it was in, and he just said, it'll never happen. And I took that in, and every year from then on until 13 years later, ceramics moved to the other building. <laughs> so um, I appreciated also that as a chair, from my vantage point, he never played favorites. In other words, he didn't have some cronies on the faculty that he went and had lunch with every day. You know, he kind of held himself in reserve. He ran the department very well and didn't get involved in personalities and never gossiped. He was just a real professional person, and you could rely that when he said something, that's what he meant. And that worked very well for me. And then he believed in, merit, he was, he believed in meritocracy. So he rewarded people who had ambition, and I oddly turned out to be one of those people. <laughs> it surprised even you. <laughs> yes, it, I didn't realize it till I looked back on what I had accomplished. <laughs> okay. We also want to talk about some of the people that you've mentored during your lifetime. So let's switch to that. Okay. I mean, I guess background would be that I can't, I, my mother, my father really thought girls shouldn't go to college, but my mother never balked at all. I was the first kid to really go to college. She never balked with the idea that I was going to be in either music or art. She was always very supportive. Um, But she did say this, you should go get a teaching certificate while you're at this so that if you get married, you're on the same page as your children with school systems. So even though I never had any goals to be married or have children, um, I thought that sounded reasonable, and I did that. So I have taught in my life, both as an independent studio artist, as a middle school teacher, a junior high school teacher, a university and a graduate school mentor. I've taught elder hostel. I've taught, taught preschool. I've taught at community centers. I mean, it just is a huge, encompassing thing. And over the course of that, I started feeling like I mentored people, although I don't know that that word was in usage even. But in other words, nurturing students to reach beyond what they thought they were capable of when I was teaching junior high school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And some of those names still resonate with me, although I have lost touch with the students, but um, just talented youngsters. It was the 60s. It was a wild time. Uh, School was very uh, irregular, you could say. And the students were irregular. (laughs) So so starting then, and then certainly when I was teaching undergrad, when I came to Nebraska, I was the only person in my field of ceramics, Just a couple, there were four or five painters, but almost every other media area had one faculty member. And I was not willing to lower standards to take grad students that I didn't feel were up to the task to come in and do an intensive program and exploit an incredible potential. So then I mentored some uh, undergraduate students, and some of them went on to do amazing things. And like Billy Howard is a name that comes to mind. I'm still in touch a little bit with these people, one of them more than the other. But Billy uh, went on from a stellar career as an undergraduate at UNL to graduate school at University of Washington in Seattle. And then he opened an art gallery that became renowned. And I think at about age 27, Billy was the president of the Seattle Art Association um, art oh gallery associate, yeah, and then he went on to selling works by renowned artists, I mean, truly internationally known artists like Damien Hirst, and um, at this time, he's in a different realm altogether. It's very hard to make a life in the arts, because you have to be willing to, success would be middle, middle class, um, and, and then the art bus came along, Billy's Gallery, which was a high-end gallery now in Pioneer Square in Seattle just just died with the crash in 2008, and he's now in the financial realm. 
working for a big financial agency. So when did you first put the label of mentoring on your relationship with Billy? A couple of years ago when the word mentoring came into being. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't part of the, I mean, I could say I helped make opportunities. I encouraged. I, if I saw somebody who had real commitment, real interest, I would try to bring the world of, of ceramics and art to them any way I could. But that word mentoring is, is really something I've never focused on that as a word until possibly the last 10 years or so. And then the people I really mentored was when we had a, we, we, you know, Nebraska is now one of the top five graduate schools in ceramics in the country. And that's when talented people, and that's when I could really say, yeah, they, well, they, they, did they tell me I was a mentor, some of them. Not all of them, it, mind you. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, our listeners, Gail built the ceramics department in this university. So when she says it's one of the top five, that is a remarkable accomplishment. That must give you a great deal of satisfaction. Well, it probably is the achievement that for which I was rewarded by the National Council on Education in the Ceramic Arts. But, of course, like all things, you don't ever do anything alone. I had help, first of all, from that remarkable department chair, Joe Rufo, and then I had the opportunity to hire another faculty member, and I hired Pete Pinnell, Peter Pinnell he goes by now, and he is still at the university. He was more known in the field than me, and I feel like that was that I would do that. That's not a common thing I would say, that people will do in academia, per se, is hire people that are more known than they are. Pete was, and the minute Pete came on board, plus I wanted both genders to be in there, um, I think you get mentorship, a different kind of mentorship from your own gender, and then you get a op- another another little kind of mentorship from the opposite gender. How and, would you um, characterize the difference? Well, especially for females. Females often don't get adequate mentorship in an all-male environment because men rule. I mean, that's the way it is. And so especially, but I would, both another colleague, we got a third colleague, Eddie Dominguez, and Eddie and I always said, don't go to grad school where there's not both genders who can mentor you, because, and what are the differences? I am hard-pressed to say, because I think stereotypes only go so far, but there is a difference. I think maybe all women have a maternal aspect to them that and and all men have a clubby aspect to them and that's what becomes hard for women they often can't break into the good old boys club that happens as you drink beer and around the wood kiln doing all-nighters one after another firing now these things are sort of changing but they were more entrenched 20 some years ago so well that's interesting i want to go back to billy for a minute what did you see in him? Talent. Talent and hard work and commitment. And actually, these are the things that you see in anybody that you really feel is worth putting your uh, guts into in a committed way. Because, you know, talent, work ethic, you know, these are the things, ambition, these are the things people have to have to succeed. And then they need the fourth thing that they cannot control, unfortunately, which is luck. That luck factor. But in the, the people that I've mentored, and some of these people don't go on to maybe work in clay even, but they were all the one that one people that came into our grad program had way above average, just sheer talent in the art realm. Have you spoken often to Billy once he got into finance? Do you stay in touch? We stay in touch a little bit. I'd say we talk at least once a year. A couple years ago, he won, he was awarded the um, alumni prize. That's not the right terminology, but he won the alumni award for the College of Fine and Performing Arts, and he was up here for about three days where he gave lectures to students. He met with faculty across the board in the College of Fine and Performing Arts, 
and there was a dinner in his honor, and we really got to spend some good time. His parents came down from South Dakota, um, and I had everybody over for dinner, and I always do like to be able to pull people into a dinner situation when I'm having a reunion of any kind. And, um, and Billy now is married with a couple children and pretty happy. I mean, Billy was actually the son of a highly successful businessman. And Billy sold art, but he could sell anything. He inherited that talent as well as all of his art talent. Have you ever asked him whether there were things from his journey with art that contributed to his success in the world of finance? Um, I'm sure, that, yes, and I know for sure that one of them is uh, many of his clients are people that he met when he was dealing art because he was dealing high-end art to very successful people in the Seattle area and up and down, actually, up and down the West Coast. So they became the core people that he probably then is now advising. So that way, for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, who else comes to mind in terms well, of Well, another really mentored? wonderful Nebraska uh, kid is um, Garth Johnson. Garth Johnson is huge in the ceramic realm now. He was somebody who came from the Columbus area, a country boy, came to Lincoln, and as an undergrad, just to point out, I mean, these people, I've had the great pleasure to work with many young individuals, young in the art world anyway, who are more talented than I am, I believe. And so Garth came to Lincoln, and the first thing he did as an 18-year-old is he got a radio program on Fresh um, it's not Fresh Air, that's Minneapolis, but KZUM. And the second thing he did was open a used CD and 50s furniture shop on O Street, and it was called Zero Street in honor of Allen Ginsberg. And he was just another wild man, creative talent, very dedicated, went on to another one of the top schools in ceramics, Alfred State, Alfred University. Um, it's called the New York College of Ceramics at Alfred University and got his um, MFA from there and in ceramics or in all of art. The MFA is the terminal degree. Um, and now he is, and he drifted around doing things, this thing and that thing, and he was teaching community college in Eureka, California, Humboldt County, and then he was hired to be the creative director of the Clay Studio in Philadelphia, and right out of there, he wasn't even there a year, he's now the curator of a very prestigious um, museum of ceramic art at Arizona State University. And he's on the board of Enseca, and his, his name is out there. He, you know, he started the Pottery Liberation Front while he was at UNL, and um, just a, a super creative very scintillating, exciting personality to go along with all that talent. Garth Johnson. You're pretty proud of him. <laughs> he's great. And we're in touch a lot because he's still in the field. He's out there mover and shaker doing stuff. And we see each other probably twice a year. That's terrific. We're about to break for another commercial. When we come back... Uh, in preparing for this, uh, Gail made me aware that she once curated an art exhibit, and the theme of it was mentoring. And so, Gail, when we come back, I'm going to ask you to talk about how that, how you even thought about doing that, and how it came to be, and what it was like. Mm -hmm. So let's right. take a few minutes break, and we'll be back. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. When people are making a significant impact, they're engaged, motivated, and excited. They love what they do. When those people work for you, you get results. 
Results matter and people drive results. But how do you recognize those people? At Talent Plus, we've assessed millions of people over decades using our rigorous science to predict successful on-the-job performance and cultural fit with an organization's mission, vision, and values. Our online assessments and person-to-person interviews not only identify talents, but uncover a roadmap for success from a person's first day on the job to the day they retire. When people celebrate their talents, use them daily, and think about how to lead with their strengths, they help their companies grow, produce, and innovate. Want to learn more about empowering your people to help you do great things? Visit us today at www.talentplus.com. Talent Plus, where science meets talent, where people drive results. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com This is Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. We're back with Gail Kendall. And I'm asking her about an exhibit she curated fairly recently that had to do with mentoring. So, Gail, tell us how this concept even came up for you. Well, I can really pinpoint how the concept came up, and it's because I retired from the university in 2011, and I totally missed the work I did with grad students. I missed the contact. I missed being around young people, undergrads as well. I mean, being around youth is exciting because everything is ahead of them. And I was suddenly thrown into this thing where you could sort of say a lot was behind me. And I was interested in in just reflecting on some of the people I had gotten to know and worked with and watched their careers just evolve And then in my field, there is a a kind of gulf between the people that are studio potters or studio ceramic artists and the academic arena. And sometimes there's actually resentments, but also there's um, a divide that, like Pete Pinnell, my colleague over there at the U, said, Gail, you and I were pseudo potters because we had these day jobs that took a lot of energy, consumed a lot of our time, even though they were 10 months a year, they extended into being on your mind all the time, 12 months a year, and we weren't working. We didn't need to rely on our work to pay the bills and support us. So he called us pseudopotters, which I thought was a good term. And then there's the people that are out there doing it, and they have apprentices, They have assistants that come in and work with them for up to two or three years. And I just had this idea. I was called to ask to curate a show, and it didn't have a theme at the time. Or maybe it came in contact with a conversation with one of my former grads, um, Caitlin Applegate at the time. She's now Caitlin Brown. um, That I would like to curate a show on mentorship that would encompass the wide range of what's out there in the field. So we invited 12 academics. I got to pick, do all the choosing. 12 people in academia who mentored undergrads and graduate students. And 12 people were outside of academia. A couple of them ran big clay programs at kind of what I would you call art camps, like Anderson Ranch Arts Center, Penland School of Crafts, Arrowmont College School of Arts and Crafts. There's many of these. So I invited a couple directors that I had really seen them go get out of the office, work hands-on, and have huge influences on people that I might get to know later. Some of them came to graduate school with us. And then, then the people that are, just say, potters out there um, who have made for many years, they've proven their worth, they've made a living, not cranking out pots, but really thinking about them, exploiting their artistic potential, and those people who have taken on apprentices. So we had 12 of that group, 12 of the other group. Each one of those people was um, invited to uh, invite a mentor, and each one of those couples then showed one piece of work at this exhibition. And it was at the Clay Art Center in Port Chester, New York, which is just north of Manhattan. And I did get to see the show, it was a very small gallery, but the work was phenomenal. 
And probably, the, you know, with any art exhibition, it's the paper that lives on while the work goes away and the exhibition closes. But the paper lives on in terms of a catalog or a poster or a flyer or a show announcement, whatever it is, those things carry on where the rest is vapor. So they were kind enough there to do a lovely catalog, and they invited each mentor and each mentored artist to write something about their experience of working with their mentor or being mentored. And that, that document is very touching to me. And at the time, I said to Caitlin, who was the curator of the show, I said, well, I'm not going to be in it, Caitlin, because I believe curating is a separate thing than being in the show. And there is a trend that I don't like, because I'm an old fogey, of curators being in the show or curators opening their mouths. And I just said, I'm not going to be in it. And I'm not going to have a mentor. They went behind my back. And they asked Michael Strand, who is one of our world, he is world-renowned, I'm not really, he is world-renowned uh, in the social art medium. He goes all over the planet doing projects with people. They invited him to write about me. And so there's this really touching little thing of, of Michael Strand about me. And, you know, this kind of document, I think it really is the most heartwarming thing to hear what people say. For example, Richard Notkin, who invited Tip Tolan. She's a remarkable figurative artist. Richard is a ceramic sculptor and very much content-driven artworks, exquisite maker. And he just said that he didn't feel like he, he mentored her, that they were, that she mentored him as much as he mentored her. And just many things like that. I think that kind of thing goes on in these relationships. They become so close. Um, this exhibition had a title called The Art of Mentorship, and then it had some adjectives that just went through guide, counselor, another thing, and then friend. And those are the stages that I believe can occur in the best mentorship things, where at the end, you are lifelong friends because you have such a close relationship through this process. I had the privilege of reading this, uh, you called it a, a brochure? What did you call it? Well, I called it a catalog. A catalog. And I had the privilege it, of reading this. But it's something this, in between the two. This catalog before our conversation today. And it really, it really was remarkable. One of the things that I think is different in your world, the world of ceramics, that I have not yet encountered is people take on what appeared to me to be maybe old-fashioned apprentices, where they're just spending a huge amount of time together uh, mm-hmm. in, in the studio and in the kiln and things of that sort. Not in the kiln, but around the kiln. Around, and, yeah. And uh, that, to me, is different than the other relationships that I've encountered, that they would spend that much one-on-one time together. Uh, say more about that. Well, it's very intense. Um, I invited Mark Shapiro was one uh, person I invited to this exhibition. I need to have that brochure in front of me. Um, and he he's somebody who for a long time has hosted between one and three people working at his studio for at least two years, and it can go on longer. And just the other day, I called up a magazine. There's a magazine in my field called Studio Potter, and I was just signing on for a lifelong, you know, subscription. And the fellow I talked to was named Josh, and he happens to be right now one of Mark Shapiro's um, apprentices, although he said that's not the word Mark uses anymore. But um, it is definitely apprentice. And to me, the, the, the luckiest students, that carry on and are going to make ceramics their profession, they both go get an MFA and they do an apprenticeship like this because those people that are the real potters who have to think about money, efficiency, use of materials, environmental issues, they're the ones that are going to put the, the stamp that will allow these people uh, to go out and be successful because they learn how to pack a kiln tightly. In a grad program like ours, things are much more about learning process, 
nobody looks to see if your kiln is really totally packed, if you're saving every, you know, getting all of your value out of the expense incurred from firing. So things like this, how to pack pots, how to ship. Sylvie Granatelli is another one, runs a three-year apprenticeship out of, or maybe it's two years out of Floyd County, Virginia, and she's been working for many, many years, highly successful, exquisite work, and she just takes these people and turns that puts that burnish of a successful entity and business person. She always insists that her apprenticeships, her apprentices will also undergo critiques, and she's very good at it. One would think in this kind of an apprenticeship where people are spending so much time together every single day, I assume people have to move to wherever mm-hmm. their yep, they do. Uh, mentor is. Uh, so they're spending all this time together. One would think that you should choose somebody that you're going to like to spend time with if you're going to be the mentor. And you hope you will. But, you know, it's like you don't know what it is. It's like all, everything is like, a, I always say all of it's like a mail-order bride. You hire a new faculty member, you don't know what they're like till they're there, really. We never know. And so, of course, there are occasions when there's not a, it's not a match made in heaven. And then, um, but I've still known people that have gone through the two years because they feel the value of it is worth it, even though they're not going to be best friends with this person when it's over. In reading the catalog, it occurred to me that most of the pairs in there, the mentor-mentee pairs, did actually use that word friend. They did say that they became friends, Uh and many of the mentors said that they experienced plenty of growth from that relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like I have learned lots from all of my students over the decades, for sure. Even students, my first job out of college was teaching at an inner-city middle school in Chicago that was wilder than all get-out. They had had nine teachers from September to February when I arrived. I found out the teacher had placed bets on how long I'd last. But I can still say I learned from some of those kids. I learned great lessons in a very short amount of time of what not to do as a teacher. It was like a baptism by fire. (laughs) So, of course, these things are always two-way streets. That's, uh, I think, a very important insight about the mentoring relationship. I I have yet to meet somebody who says that they mentored another person and did not grow out of it. In other words, every mentor is saying, I'm growing as much, maybe not as much, but certainly I'm growing along with the person I'm mentoring. What advice would you have for women of any age Mm. who really want to find a mentor but so far haven't quite? Well, I imagine that in your world, Larry, this is much more common. For, and what I mean by that is right now in the university art programs, there's more women than men, kind of across the nation. But let's face it, in the business world, or my husband's an engineer in the engineering world, there's 10 men for every woman at least. And women do feel they have this problem. They can't go to the locker room with the guys, you know. Um, if women can't find a mentor in the organization they're working for, or the place they're working, they have to somehow reach out to a place where they will find mentorship. And I don't know if that means joining um, a church or a synagogue, or if it means joining an organization outside their milieu of where they are. It does mean that for sure. They're going to have to just try to figure it out because that mentorship is crucial, I believe, to um, reaching your full potential earlier rather than later. In other words, it gives you a boost. Mentorship gives you confidence. And um, if you can't get that mentorship, it's easier to fall through the cracks. And maybe you don't care, but maybe you do care. You can't reach your goals. What do you think the main thing is, be it uh, a male or a female, what do you think the main thing is to possibly attract the attention of somebody who might want to mentor? Well, you can't really wear a sign. (laughs) Right. Um, 
I think that the, here's where this, the kind of vulnerability that comes from that every artist has to confront in making work, pulling it out. A men, uh, somebody looking for a mentor, and it doesn't have to be your own gender, you're absolutely right, um, would be willing to approach somebody. They would step out, and they would just be able to have a conversation that said, you know, I really, I'm, I have so many questions, I have so many concerns, I have, uh, I want to move ahead, I want to be fulfilled, um, and I really could use a mentor. Do you think you could be that person? And pe- people would say yes or no. Am I way off the charts here? Uh, I think you're on the charts. I think it takes okay. a particular kind of person to ask that question. Mm-hmm. You've said you're a very straightforward person. I, I'm not sure everybody has what it takes to go up to possibly wow. a stranger and say... Well, not a stranger, but just say you, you've seen somebody across the cafeteria and you've observed them for a couple months and you just see things about them that you're drawn to and you feel and you've heard through the scuttlebutt that, of their success rate to approach that person. And I think that you don't have to be comfortable doing it, but you better go out there and do it, right? I mean, you just have to force yourself. And once you've done it once, and if they say no, you do it again, you gird your loins and you get out there and you do it again, and somebody will say yes, and you will get to have this experience, this invaluable experience. I think that's terrific advice, and I'm reminded of a piece of advice my father gave me, and he was my first mentor, and that is a thousand doors can close, but only one door needs to open. Exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are looking for a mentor, that person who will challenge you, who will believe in you, who will critique you when necessary, who will see something in you and demand that you fulfill your potential, get out there and meet people. And when you see somebody you admire and you respect, just ask that person. If they say no, you're in exactly the same situation you were before you asked. Exactly. I would always say to students, don't say no to your, you know, let the, the world can't wait to say no to you. Do not say no to yourself. You must get out there. What's the worst that can happen? You're not going to have your arm chopped off. Somebody will say no. That's the worst thing that can happen. That is a fitting conclusion to our conversation today (laughs) because it is now time to wrap it up. Gail, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this week for Mentoring with Larry Sternberg. Please join Larry again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of the program on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.